And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're excited to welcome to the podcast today Joseph McKay. Joseph is at the Australian National University, and he's the author of the recently released "The Counterinsurgent Imagination: A New Intellectual History." Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so, the counterinsurgent imagination. First of all, what is counterinsurgency? And then what is the counterinsurgent imagination? Sure. So uh, in the first instance, counterinsurgency is, it, it's usually conventionally defined as the uh, the assortment of strategies and tactics and stuff in military life. We associate with things like um, the term population-centric counterinsurgency or hearts and minds, stuff like that. Terms that have been in circulation since probably about 1960, particularly in American circles. And uh, and elsewhere in uh, in the North Atlantic as well. Um, I define it a bit more broadly as just anything that gets used in an attempt to suppress a revolutionary or an insurgent or a guerrilla war. And that that definition would apply over a much longer, longer haul. So the story I'm telling in the book is the story of how we arrived at that one particular definition uh, over a period of, uh, of the last several hundred years. So the counterinsurgent imagination is, if you like, the uh, the intellectual process, the, the the communal intellectual process across a series of intellectual military communities of arriving at that set of ideas. So you start your history in the early modern period. So how does counterinsurgency function back then? Could you have counterinsurgency without a state? What made you pick this particular moment to start? In as opposed to, you know, I, I particularly, I'm an American diplomatic historian, very much associate counterinsurgency with the 20th century and perhaps even more the second half of the 20th century and the type of colonial wars that were going now. So how do you intellectually decide to start at that period and, and what is starting that early reveal to us? Sure. So you're you're in a sense basically right to think of starting around the around the second half of the twentieth century. That's when the term is first coined in about nineteen sixty, probably at the Rand Corporation. First appears in print in the next couple of years after that. By starting earlier, we get a, a sense of that that background set of historical conditions that produced those things. So I start in early modern Europe because that's when the first texts about counterinsurgency are written. The first we get the first references to to what we might call forms of revolutionary and counter-revolutionary war. So the book, um, what, the what book, year just to situate us in time? Okay. Um, the earliest, the earliest historical, um, instructional text I'm aware of is 1599. That's a Spanish language manual that dates from the Americas. So pre-Westphalian post-colonial. So that's an interesting space to begin, yeah. right? Or no, or no. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're quite right. It's, uh, it's interesting in that it's a, a text that, uh, the author, the author was um, uh, among the Spaniards going to the to the, the New World, quote unquote, to engage in the Spanish Imperial Project, and he arrived a bit late. So there was not a whole lot left to do. It was hard for him to establish the, the kind of greatness for himself, the kind of wealth that he might have been looking for. So he winds up writing this as a sort of a justificatory text, among other things, that gives rise to, in part, to the later tradition. Although it's in this, the sense of this particular text, it's a little unclear how 
how deeply and broadly influential it is. We start get, first get a clutch of these texts, like a group of them kind of participating in a conversation around the um, around the 18th century. They, so they start turning up around 1750s, so about 150 years later. And those folks are drawing on a more Central European tradition of of small wars, petit guerre, this sort of thing. Precisely. So small – that could you talk a little bit about small wars? Because this is really the moment where a lot of the primary concepts of modern war are developed. So like what is happening in Europe that leads to this particular form of thinking to emerge? You know, this is the era of European state making. It's the era of colonialism. It's the early yeah. capitalist period. Maybe it might be interesting to sort of situate this founding moment to get a sense of this imagination that continues and expands over the next several hundred years. Yeah. So the term small wars, I think it first appears in a French dictionary somewhere around um, somewhere around uh, 1750, 1650. Um, and then it, it, it uh, refers to an existing set of practices um, that eventually get written down over the next hundred years or so. Um, but the um, the term belongs to this period, as you say, in, in early modern Europe of, of state consolidation and formation, um, the emergence of um, the emergence of, of of things that look like states or that have state like qualities in particularly in Central Europe, where where state consolidation is a, a slower process. So one of the authors I look at, for example, is from one of these German statelets around uh, around the second half of the 18th century. These authors tend to be writing in French, a bit in German, I think, uh, but they're from all over. One's a Hungarian, for example, who's in, in Austro-Hungarian service at the time. And they are uh, are producing the first instructional texts for what they sometimes call small war, sometimes call partisan war, sometimes just talk about light troops or light infantry. So this is, is small formations of, of unmounted soldiers uh, operating, usually apart from regular armies, doing things that sound vaguely like guerrilla warfare to, to, to a conventional observer or like partisan warfare. It's not particularly political. It doesn't have any particular ideological package attached to it. And they're getting it from a sense of, of prior military traditions in kind of backwoods, um, feudal sorts of settings. They're often associated with uh, essentially East European minoritarian groups, backgrounds supposedly in sort of mountains sort of areas. So a lot of this is associated with the Balkans, for example. Um, some of it comes out to things like um, resistance to early Ottoman encroachment in the region. So it's a set of military traditions that have this sort of organic backstory out of the later Middle Ages and into the early modern period. And they get consolidated into European states as the states themselves are consolidating because they find these, these military techniques useful. And then people start writing them down. So what part of the imagination do you identify at this very early moment? Can we see already there at the, at the present at the creation, as it were? Not a whole lot, in a sense. Uh, it's kind of the status quo ante in a lot of ways. It's the the emergence of something we would recognize as as a kind of irregular warfare uh, in a kind of a, a, a beginning to be a formalized way. Um, and it begins to acquire a kind of counter-revolutionary or conservative set of connotations as it encounters things like revolutionary warfare. So I associated early on, early on with the American Revolutionary War, for example, when we start getting these guys as Hessian mercenaries turning up in America, and and they find that this set of this set of uh, techniques and, and and tactics that they have are useful, but that they suddenly become bound up with a set of a set of political practices and, and mobilization strategies that that were foreign to them, uh, and they begin to have to have to think about what they're doing in a in a tacitly counter revolutionary way. They don't always know they do they're doing it, but they they are beginning to internalize ideas of revolution and counter revolution. You you begin to see this on the page when they're writing about. 
So the first person you focus on is Johann Ewald. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about him. You, you referenced him already, but who was this guy and why is he such a critical figure in the um, counter, the story of the counterinsurgent imagination? And it might be a useful place to talk about revolution and counter-revolution, which are these paradigmatic early modern to modern forces that become these things. So uh, it's a broad question, but you know, feel free to go deep. Our listeners, as I've said before, are the most sophisticated people on the internet. So there you go. Uh, thanks. I will. I will try. So Evel, to start there, is um, he's a Hessian mercenary. As I say, he's born in Hesse Kassel in in what is now kind of north central Germany. Uh, Kassel was a a small. The monarch built it as a kind of uh, himself as a kind of enlightened autocrat. It was the sort of early enlightenment project of, of state building. Uh, but in practice, it was actually quite militarized because they were they were financing the state essentially through mercenarism. They were renting out soldiers to to uh, other European monarchs. So it became incredibly militarized as they were um, bringing people up into the system. So so Evel is a product of that. He comes from a military family, spends his whole life in, in military service, uh, eventually follows military service out of Kassel and becomes a Danish national. It's, it's his, whole, his whole way of being in the world is this thing. And he spends something close to eight years in America when they, when they send him there. He had a background in, in this sort of small warfare in Europe. He... Um, had done done all of the reading we know uh, in the folks like Chenet, Gramaison, the folks who had written these these mid eighteenth century instructional texts. Uh, so he knew how to how to think about things in those terms, and he gets contracted off to America, having served in a few European wars previously, and arrives there and finds it's very strange because there is a revolution going on. Uh, I understand the word revolution in a fairly kind of uh, conventional dictionary sort of sense. It's a big political transformation. Um, going on in this case through a, a, a highly militarized set of means in um, in the 13 colonies. We have this idea, I, I think it's basically right about the American Revolution, that it's not it's not a social revolution. It's not a vastly transformative process of, of social order in the United States. It's conservative of things like settler colonialism, um, the institution of slavery, stuff like this. Um, but Evel was a European monarchist, and he still experienced it as pretty well, I, have you read the 1776 report? It's it's fascinating <laughs> information about the founding period. You should I, check I, it out. I have not, and I bet it is. I will I will put that on the list. Thank you. Uh, so well, we can send you a copy. We have boxes of them. I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, we we ordered four hundred. So could we talk a little bit about revolution, though, because I think that, yeah. that that's a particularly crucial category to the books. So what is meant by revolution here? And then how does that sort of dialogically or even dialectically inform what's going on with this counterinsurgent imagination with Eovald as a representative here? Sure. So uh, I mean, a, a, a revolution is a, um, a military, in this case, project of, of, of potentially radical political change. And I mean, it is in really modern category uh, and onward, we would use it much before then. Uh, because I'm tracking revolution over a long period of time, the content of a revolution is something that I don't endow in any specific way. So eventually it's communist and a variety of other things. At this point, it's um, liberal democratic or perhaps even less than that. It's a, uh, it is a project in this case of, of, of ending the British monarchy's rule in a part of North America. And that's the thing to which Evel is positioning himself as a counter-revolutionary. Counter-revolution is a I mean, it, it's it's what it says on the tin. It's a reactive category, right? So, uh, is in, there a political valence to that, though? Are there ideas of order and sort of godliness and righteousness, or 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 because, like, I don't know much about Hessian soldiers. I know you'll find it difficult to imagine, but like, <laughs> they're portrayed like almost like very brutishly. So, like, yeah. 
what is the ideology behind some? Is he just like a, a sellsword, as they say in in uh, I think not Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones? <laughs> like, that's who is this guy? Yeah, yeah, and he's not. That that's kind of what's interesting here. He comes from this very. He uses the word honor a lot. He has a very kind of professional soldier's view of things. I mean, the, the Hessians were what we're we're broadly told they were uh, historically. Uh, they were disproportionately involved in looting in America. They were um, they were radicalizing of the American population simply because the Americans colonists thought the British crown was sending mercenaries to crush their rebellion. And they were horrified by that. Uh, Evel didn't see himself that way. He saw himself as a principled monarchist um, being, as it were, rented out from one monarch to another, from one sovereign to another. And, um, and he saw this as a principled project in some sense. He talks a lot about principle. He never quite acquits himself with the political project of the American revolutionaries because he thinks it's dishonorable. You can see they're very efficient. They're effective. He respects them as, as soldiers. And he talks a lot about um, but he never quite gets his head around what they're trying to do and why he should approve of it. There would never been anything like this in Europe before, so we would have had no no context from which to develop an understanding of it. So his understanding is all kind of reactive as a result. So is that something you find across history, this notion of order and the upending of the order and counter and part of the counterinsurgent imagination being the maintenance of the status quo? Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah, it is status quo maintenance. Sometimes it's 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 prior status quo reproduction. So sometimes it's in the in the sort of the dictionary sense reactionary. It's a restoration of a past thing. But yeah, it's it's about order maintenance. It is the project of um, of reproducing order that has been destroyed or maintaining order when it is under threat through a series of military techniques, strategies, tactics, and so on. That's the, the that is the recurring thing. And so what does, what does Evald say? What is, what does he add to the counterinsurgent imagination? And why is he a, such a crucial figure for you to really begin your book with him in a certain sense? See, he's a crucial figure because he gives us an early account of doing something that had previously been not very political as being very political, as being this reactive, conserving, uh, counter-revolutionary, counter-insurgent sort of project. Um, he's crucial because we know more about him than a lot of others, frankly. Some of this is, you know, you, you, you write about the people you can see in the sources. We happen to have his diary, which is um, detailed and extensive, but we can see him thinking through these things. None of the politics, interestingly, find their way explicitly onto the pages of his manual kind of tacitly there in a variety of ways. There's some honor talk and some some service to one sovereign kind of talk and what have you. But the the manuals are basically just just page after page of training and tactics and stuff like that. It's very, very, very kind of boilerplate military life kind of stuff. When you see him talking about what he's actually thinking on the fly in the diary, and I presume elsewhere, uh, he's saying um, he's saying very strong things about his his disagreement and that interest in, disagreement with and that interest in uh, the Americans, his gradual suspicion of the British, who we thought were um, just sort of grossly ineffectual and incompetent, uh, and so on. So he gives us he gives us a story about the kind of political order he is trying to restore, and then he gives us a story about how that um, how he saw that fail in America, in effect, and then tries to write a a set of instructions for preventing that happening in the future, or at least implicitly, that's what the manuals do. So what are the politics there explicitly? So the politics are a politics of, um, of monarchical rule, which he's in favor of. There are politics of um, a particular kind of hierarchical social order, which he sees as basically naturally occurring, uh, or at least appears to. Um, and they're the politics about at least the possibility of, of, of a kind of military rule. 
because he comes from this militarized background that seems to come fairly naturally to him. You see him talking about this very little, but it's always present in that he always imagines rule as a kind of a militarized thing. And there's no racialized element, or is there? there, This is interesting. Um, Not Certainly not on the pages of the manual, not explicitly, and frankly not implicitly either, because he's writing about European wars. It's not a lot of racial content to work with. Uh, He absolutely says racist racist things in his diary uh, about... Um, about black people in America, um, about uh, indigenous Americans, and so on. That content is there. He was as racist as we might expect a a limitedly educated person, for that matter, an educated person in early modern Europe to be. It doesn't shape his politics a whole lot because his politics aren't particularly colonial. This is the other thing that's a little unusual about his, his book, is that he's writing it from a colonial setting without any prior experience of colonization or uh, or the life of empire broadly, which he I don't think it particularly thought of before. He simply saw it as a an extension of European sovereignty. So, so those things are not really present on the page in the way we might expect in later texts. By the time we get to the 19th century with, with later counterinsurgency, folks, it's, it's very, very explicitly racially hierarchic. Let's move into the, the 19th century. Your next case study is, is C. Caldwell and the the British conflicts in South Africa. But I'm I'm curious before we get into discussing him, there's there's this period in the early part of the 19th century where you have, you know, resistance movements to Napoleon, you have uh, things happening in Europe, and then, of course, the Africa becomes a much bigger component of the, the colonial mindset than it had been previously. So uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the changes that uh, we see happening in terms of how people approach these uh, these issues and how they inform what Caldwell uh, would write later on. Sure. So uh, it's a long gap. You're 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 noting here between the the first and the second cases, and a lot does happen. Um, so that's the the rise of the 19th century, the sort of the, the broad sweep of European colonialism um, beyond the Americas, um, which has already gotten going in some areas, but really rises extensively over this period. So a kind of a set of ideas about colonial warfare appears over the run of the 19th century and begins to turn up in. Um, in writing over the run of that period. Uh, this is also the period that has, as you say, the Napoleonic Wars at the beginning. Evold lived long enough to to to, to have this kind of dual role in the Napoleonic Wars. As, a, as an eventual Danish national, he was um, on Napoleon's side of those things. He was military governor of a German city for a while near the end of his life during the, the Napoleonic Wars. On the one hand, on the other hand, his, his, his second instructional book got translated by the British for use in the Peninsular War, so the resistance against the Napoleonic occupation of Spain. So he's kind of on both sides of them, which is interesting. It shows that the kind of the underlying dualism of those early those early texts. And we start seeing an onward set of effects in there. So for example, um, Bougeot, a, a Frenchman who's involved in, um, in the Napoleonic Wars, eventually is also involved in the occupation of Algeria. So we get an onward trajectory from the one set of conflicts to the other. And these um, these European ideas um, get kind of reproduced in some ways in colonial settings. In some respects, the the ideas of a colonial warfare, a tradition of their own, although they're they're referred to as small war a lot. Uh, so there's a, an overlap of terminology there, uh, and so we get this kind of convergence of the two traditions over the run the the run of the 19th century as as colonial um, colonial practices kind of overtake the European tradition, which largely falls out of use. And people like Evold and his and his, his priors, his influences from the, the 18th century, more or less ceased to be written over the course of that period. So we get to somebody like Caldwell, who's kind of a synoptic product of the British Empire. He was an Irishman born in London. He served on 
at least two or three continents across multiple conflicts and in colonial occupations. He was fully a product of the British Empire. He writes this completely encyclopedic text, uh, first published in 1896, then 1899, then 1906, uh, in the final edition, the instructional text for uh, the conduct of this kind of really extremely violent small wars, his term uh, as well. He comes explicitly from a system of of, of European uh, racial hierarchies. He's explicitly pretty reactionary. He talks about colonial reformers and what have you, who he very much doesn't like. Uh, and his book is a a long synoptic survey of everything you can do in an irregular war, as long as it's really, really incredibly violent and unpleasant. Before we continue with him, is there any connection to Clausewitz or Jomini or any of the classical military theorists that people might be familiar with? There is, yeah. Uh, we know Evold was read by and influenced uh, Clausewitz. Uh, there is, there is a, a reading of Clausewitz on which this category of small warfare was actually quite important to him in, in formulating some of his more general ideas. So Evold and a few of a few of the others from that earlier period are influences on him in formulating that. I'm not a Clausewitz scholar, so I'm not sure I wanna I want to invest all that deeply in precisely what's going on with him there. But there is that that effect, and that probably is probably an onward influence from that earlier literature through Caldwell as a, as a conduit as well. So how, what's the difference between Caldwell and Eval? The obvious difference between one is literally the embodiment of an imperial, uh, spa- literally sort of the, the representative of that. And how does that play into the increasing racialization of counterinsurgency and the increasing ideology behind it as it's connected to specifically empire and an imperial subject? Sure. So if you wanted to say there are just sort of three things going on in the, the transition from one to the other, uh, counterinsurgency, counterrevolutionary warfare, colonial warfare becomes more global. It moves fully outside of Europe. It's not happening really in Europe at all anymore to the Napoleonic Wars, or at least not, not in the main. It's happening uh, out there in, the, in, in colonized spaces. So there's that one, it becomes global. Two, it becomes therefore colonial. And three, by extension, it becomes um, really, really explicitly racist. The forms of that racism vary um, depending on what author you're looking at and the specific things that they invest in in terms of military life and political life derived from that racism vary across authors. But in Caldwell's case, it's, it's really quite extremely violent. Um, I would describe it as kind of reactionary. He's, he's nostalgic for earlier periods of empire in, in various ways. And it's really, really explicitly about what he sees as a kind of performative use of violence as a way of... Um, of, uh, of of suppressing or, or putting down any kind of uh, of anti colonial resistance, right? None which is it. very like a late nineteenth century idea. I mean, you have the SR revolutionaries talking about propaganda of the deed. So, is there any like reference or recognition of someone like Karl Heinzen or the SRs in Russia or the increasing domestic? use of what we would today call terrorism, a lot of problems with the word, um, or is this primarily through Caldwell imagined in the um, colonial space? Because there's a lot, I'm sure you know, recent work about how counterinsurgency comes home in the 20th century. Is there any idea of that for labor unrest, Irish nationalism, suffragettes, or not really? He's totally imagining a colonial space. Yeah. So, I mean, as I say, he was, he was notionally Irish, certainly no Irish nationalist. Um, when, when, when he mentions it briefly, very much in passing in one of his memoirs, it, it, it's quite negatively, but it only, it only barely turns up at all. I don't recall him referring to, um, to the Russian anarchists, for example, at all. I don't think any of that turns up, uh, which is interesting. Um, his, his view of these things is synoptic, but it's really about colonial warfare. 
Uh, he eventually comes home after his second deployment to South Africa um, in 1902. Um, and he's, he's sort of on a desk for the rest of his career. They never put him in the field again after that for probably reasons to do with what happened in South Africa. But there's really no sense that he sees sees things in those terms. Caldwell is interesting, among other things, because he's a kind of an incurious guy. He will just tell you what he thinks and what he thinks will just be his first intuition. Um, so the idea of these things having that kind of cycling back kind of quality to them, even if you could see it, I don't think he would have, um, I don't think he would have been thinking. Is there any ideology of liberal empire there? Uh, it just sounds like he was barbaric, but is there a civilizing mission notion? Is there, we're lifting up these benighted peoples for their own good and we need to do it through violence, but this is ultimately for the good of the world. I'm basically asking about the connection between liberal counterinsurgency and empire. Or is there not really that sort of ideological co- coherence with him? So with him, there's not, which is interesting in itself. He will he will point to people he calls reformers, by which he seems to mean sort of liberal, improving imperialists and say, no, 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 that's all wrong. We actually just need to do things the the kind of the worst old fashioned way that he's playing the in British politics, something some some sort of Tory, probably, although it's not clear exactly what his, his political record at home was. Uh, there certainly were people saying the sorts of things you were describing during that period, the equivalent Frenchman, Hubert uh, Liotte or Joseph Simon Gallieni, who was to whom Liotte was an acolyte. They had this much more, um, much more uh, liberal developmental sort of conception of, of imperial small wars and prescribed less extreme violence as a result. They, they had this sort of idea that you were going to do the, this is the, the oil spot, attached to wheel kind of model where you have a, you, you, you mark off spots on the map and you begin there and then you spread. Um, through a, a developmentalist model of various kinds. Part of what's interesting about Caldwell just as, a, as an artifact of the period is that he's none of those things. So he's, a, he's an odd example of, um, of those sort of later developments of imperialism not turning up on the page. And what does he add to the counterinsurgent imagination? If Avald adds something, maybe you could repeat that, and then what Caldwell adds, how does he sort of build into your story? So, so Avald first shows us a, um, largely by implication, the idea that counterinsurgency is, um, is something counterrevolutionary, that it's about, about standing in the way of, of political change, the, the, the standing athwart history, yelling, stop, that kind of thing. Um, whereas um, Caldwell is very explicitly, and I would say self-consciously counterrevolutionary, at least against any kind of anti-colonial revolution, um, and probably any other kind of revolution as well. Uh, we're also beginning to see uh, strains of what in the book, um, after James C. Scott, I call high modernism. We're beginning to see a sort of a systematicity to it that had not been there before. Uh, the book is 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 organized very differently. It's it's much, much longer. It's a systematic survey of military activity across strategy, tactics, modes of military organization, a certain amount of sort of modes of colonial rule and what have you. He was involved in South Africa with this sort of grid system of dividing up the countryside during the the Boer War, the Second South African War, that um, compartmentalized the countryside under under occupation in order to make it visible, legible, this sort of thing, with a system of military installations. Right, classic Foucauldian thing. So is there a social scientific element to it? Or I, this is like the American Economic Association. They're kind of just coming into being at this point, but is this like a type of proto-social science approach to counterinsurgency? So there probably is in the practices, yes. Um, the British may have been beginning to think about these sorts of things. I would bet the earliest kind of colonial anthropology is going on around that time in a way that would have been visible to the to the Brits, for example. 
None of that's directly on the page in Caldwell. He must have been influenced by it to one degree or another, A, because he's conducting these things in the field, B, because he's getting his racism, however much not scientific racism, he's getting it from somewhere. So he's internalizing these things by by kind of broader cultural osmosis probably, but he isn't, he isn't explicitly thinking in those terms. I suspect some of his more liberal imperial counterparts would have been fairly explicit. So this brings us naturally to David Galula, and he's probably, uh, if not known, this is a war that many, the Algerian war, the French war in Algeria is often the war that is pointed to as really being influential on U.S. counterinsurgent tactics in Vietnam and elsewhere. So, so who was Galula? Why is he important to your story? And maybe we could even take a step out and talk about the role of Algeria, the French war there in, in the counterinsurgent imagination. Yeah, sure. So um, moving ahead now to about about 1955, 1960. So we're moving through the two world wars, which of course kind of put a hold on a lot of these practices, give or take partisan warfare during the Second World War. Uh, the European empires emerge out of the two world wars uh, vastly weakened, and we get all of this anti-colonial resistance in part as a result of that. Um, and Galul is a product of that period. So he is a Tunisian Jewish, French national, born in Tunisia, raised Casablanca and French Morocco, acquired French citizenship kind of marginally, wound up at Saint-Cyr, the, the elite French military academy, just before the Second World War. After the war, um, gets shipped off as a military attaché to Republican China, where he witnesses Maoist guerrilla warfare. It becomes a kind of a, a transformational moment for him. So he's he's encountering revolutionary warfare in that, that context for the first time. Uh, they send him to Greece, where he witnesses a communist revolution fail. Then they send him to Hong Kong, um, as an attaché, and he kind of he, he he is aware of the other revolutionary activity going on uh, elsewhere in East and Southeast Asia. So that that's the system of which he's a product. Uh, and from there, he gets himself he he asks to have himself sent to Algeria, where he says he wants to test quote unquote certain ideas that he has about uh, revolutionary war. So Algeria is a French colony um, from uh, I think about 1830. Uh, so one of the longer standing um, 19th century French colonial possessions. It had been um, legally speaking, fully integrated into the French states. It was usually said to be a little bit different from the other other French colonies in the region and indeed elsewhere in the world. It had a large settler population, about a million people. And uh, the, the Algerian Revolutionary uh, War against that occupation, it's difficult to date these things precisely, but it probably starts sometime in the mid-1950s. Uh, so Galula has himself sent there to be involved with the, uh, the attempt to suppress that revolution uh, arriving with a set of ideas about Maoist guerrilla warfare and how one might go about suppressing it. This is interesting for a few reasons, in part because the Algerian revolutionaries weren't Maoists. Um, so he's bringing a toolkit that ought to be kind of ill-suited for the, um, for the situation. So he ends up having to adapt a bit along the way, or at least to adapt his preconceptions a bit to try to fit the, the local mold. And, so and can we talk about that? Like, what is the Maoist mold and what is the Algerian mode, the revolutionary mode there, and how are they different? Sure. So uh, Mao tells a story, one might say it's the story, uh, about 20th century um, revolutionary warfare as a series of stages. So he's working out from a, a kind of a Marxist-Leninist um, stages historical narrative. And he says that you can run a revolutionary war by moving through a series of, 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 of processes. You establish a local base, you build up support with the local population, and you expand and you you move from irregular guerrilla warfare eventually up to conventional warfare, and then eventually you defeat whoever your opponent is. Who, uh, in Mao's case, he, he when he was writing, he saw it as the, the occupying Japanese. This is during the Second World War. 
So, so that set of, um, of strategies and tactics becomes central to later revolutionary wars in, in Vietnam and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Uh, so when the French are, are booted out of what they had called Indochina, they are losing essentially to a Maoist revolutionary war of that sort. This is part of the sort of, the sort of thing that Kalula had been, um, if not directly participating in, then at least kind of witnessing at short or long distance in East Asia. The story he wants to tell is that you can kind of run that backwards. So his, his instructions in the manual are literally a process of this is this little thin, he writes a, a manual on a, on a fellowship at Harvard. He, he tells this story about running essentially the Maoist process backwards. So that internalizes a variety of surprisingly revolutionary politics into the uh, the story he's telling. Um, and of course, in Algeria, that's not going on. So he says, well, the Algerians have a nationalist shortcut route, which maybe kind of describes what they were doing. Um, you can see in his in his his report from the ground of what was going on in Algeria. He wrote a he wrote a report for Rand um, around the same time as the manual. Uh, you can see him describing things not working the, quite the way he'd expected them to, but he keeps having to kind of adjust here and there to try to to try to succeed in this very localized setting he's operating in in, in rural northeastern uh, Algeria. So, what's the ideology of Galula, and particularly a, a Jew who survived the World War II era, French Jew who survived the World War II era, is now acting on behalf of the metropole? Does he talk about that, or does he navigate that in any way? And what particularly is his ideology? Uh, see, he, he's, um, he's a French nationalist, perhaps above all else. I mean, having acquired French nationality, he was serious about it. He was a kind of true believer in something like the, um, the post-war Gaullist state. Um, some sort of imperialist of, we might call it a, a liberal kind. He was certainly not politically liberal broadly. He was some sort of conservative. But um, his, his conception of imperialism would look like a liberal imperialist. We tell stories about improvement of various kinds and what have you. Uh, and lastly, he's anti-communist. Uh, so when he gets to America and is trying to sell Americans on how to do these things, it's the anti-communism he leans into for for reasons of, of historical situation in America at the time. And and that particular brew of things allows him to kind of carry ideas from a uh, an anti-colonial uh, setting in East Asia to a purely anti-colonial setting in, in uh, Algeria and then onward to America where he gets to kind of turn the, the anti-communist rhetoric back on in a variety of ways. What explains his anti-communism? It's difficult to say is the honest answer. Um, it may have been a, fa- a function of, of uh, his, um, his more general kind of dispositional conservatism. It may have been his prior allegiance to a, a relatively conservative European government. I think he was a true believer in it. I don't think it was, it was uh, put on. I don't think it was a performance. His biographer has, has somebody he knew in high school claiming that he was already kind of anti-communist then. So his, his, his right-wing political beliefs seem to have been fairly, fairly early in the, uh, in the recipe. But he, uh, how he got there is, is less than clear other than that he had some kind of, some kind of deep dispositions on these things. It's uh, here as elsewhere, um, a disposition to the political right is often kind of a, uh, it's, it, it's a disposition, not a deeply thought out thing. It's intuitional. It, it, it's something that, that, that reacts intuitionally rather than a particularly thought out position. And how does this element of race play into it, especially given his Jewish background? So more quietly than in someone like Caldwell, uh, he understands particularly once he's writing in English that he's writing for an American audience. He can see that the civil rights movement is going on at the time, although he doesn't mention it. Um, so he doesn't say really systematically racist things exactly. Um, he, he plainly has a set of biases that he's carrying around. He gets kind of apologetic about it sometimes. He'll say things. He'll, he'll say something about about the situation in rural Algeria, and then he'll say, "Look, I know that sound terribly colonialist." 
but it's true. So he understands that he needs to be careful, but he's also quite insistent about it. At the end of the day, he he, he believes these things. Precisely what they are, we have to kind of map out um, from his, his, his statements intuitions, because he doesn't say any of it systematically. He plainly believes in the colonial project, and he believes in something, some kind of colonial tutelage or something kind of ugly like that as a, as a backstory to what he's trying to accomplish. Exactly where his Jewishness plays in here is a little harder to say, just because he, he says so little about it, frankly. Uh, it's not something that comes up a whole lot along the way. We know it's there. It's it's part of his background. He's from this particular sort of North African Jewish background that acquired French nationality over the run of the colonial period, or in his case, very late. But um, uh, it was precisely how he felt about it or thought about it is is, is remarkably unclear over the, the, the course of his, his relatively brief life. And then what does he add to the counterinsurgent imagination? So we see a formalization of this high modernism, this sort of grid-like, legible, visible, systematizing set of logics. He uh, he absolutely sees the world in um, in terms of of systems and structures and processes. There is almost certainly a strong social science influence in the background of some sort there. Although again, is we don't really see it in any kind of formalized way. He probably didn't quite have the formal education for it. But we see that in the background of the way he talks about doing things systematically. Uh, and again, some of that is coming, some of that is is recycled tacit Marxism coming through from his his radical opponents. Um, so we see that very clearly. And we see a little bit in him and very explicitly in others in the period, what I call a kind of utopianism, a kind of idealism about the political project being reinscribed. So it attempted to 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 reproduce a a more perfect version of the uh, the status quo ante, whatever whatever it was imagined to be, he wasn't super utopian. But a lot of his counterinsurgent peers around the nineteen sixties, uh, a lot of the the Europeans who wound up in America, telling Americans how to do these things, certainly the Americans themselves, thinking through how to do this stuff, had a very kind of liberal anti communist idealism about their project. People like Ed Lansdale and so on. Exactly. So just, I think it's worth mentioning Vietnam. Um, so what, what's going on now in Vietnam? Um, what's going on at the Rand Corporation? What are these counterinsurgent elements? Um, and then and then we'll go on to Iraq, because I know that's uh, your, your real focus. But tell us a bit about Vietnam. If I can add to that, I'm curious because you, you, you know, you mentioned in the book, and there is this kind of break uh, during the two world wars where nobody's focusing on small wars anymore. They're focusing on big wars. Uh, I'm curious how much, you know, people harken back as they're kind of conceptualizing this stuff in the 1960s. How much do they sort of directly take from from some of these earlier uh, writers? So it's a mixed bag uh, is the short answer. The first American, um, the first American or U.S. Army text on these things uh, after the war is written in the 1950s. And it's one guy alone who had served with the, the Hook Rebels in the Philippines against the Japanese He'd read, of all things, a Nazi counterinsurgency, a counterinsurrectionary manual at some point, and he just sort of winged it based on this odd patchwork of sources he had. So that's a drawing out specifically the 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 30-year period that you're referring to there. Um, but when we get to the 1960s, they, um, they talk about it like they're starting over. It's very strange. They don't refer backward to the pre-war period at all, or at least they tend not to. Um, a lot of the kind of the core stuff going on here, um, I mean... It, Daniel mentioned uh, RAND. There's this RAND um, conference held in, in D.C. Uh, I think it's May 1962, um, where a bunch of these guys get together. Galula's there. The Americans are all there. Lansdale's there. And and they talk through what they're going to do with this new concept, counterinsurgency, how to mobilize it toward things like Vietnam, which was 
this thing that was just sort of emerging at the time. And, uh, and they don't talk about that past at all. They talk as if that stuff is not there. So we have to look for those old, old ideas kind of sedimented into their assumptions in various ways, which, which they are, particularly the, the older French ones are, are baked in there in various ways. And then we go back from there, then the older ones are sedimented in there. And this is, it's a layering, but the layering is never explicitly stated, at least by these guys. So the, this, this is the, the accumulation of ideas that gets fed into, into practices in, in, in Vietnam. And the Americans really scale up their investment in these projects in the 1960s. So over the, I think it's over the run of the 1960s, the, um, the, the, the total American investment in just sort of intellectual production of this stuff, it, it goes up something like 16-fold. It's, it's a gigantic increase. The production of manuals goes from that one I mentioned in the 50s to dozens across multiple editions in the 60s and 70s. So this massive scaling up of the, the intellectual enterprise of, of just figuring out how to do this stuff. Now, how much of that actually winds up getting practiced on the ground in Vietnam is, I suspect it's actually pretty limited. Um, and of course, what happened in Vietnam happened. And as a result, all of these ideas were kind of put on the shelf because Vietnam went as badly as it did for the United States. But these ideas are getting scaled up uh, with, with the intent that they will in some way be involved in any communist projects uh, in the United States in general, but of course, specifically, chiefly Vietnam. So they're after Vietnam in the 70s, they're not, they don't become part of like the training that every officer has to go through. They're kind of just ignored. What is their role in kind of the American military imaginary? Well, uh, they are, they are, I mean, you could say sort of ignored or suppressed, I guess. They're, they're largely set aside, um, but they get kind of buried into, into existing things. So when folks talk about things like stability operations in Latin America or something, there are, our ideas persisting through from there. And of course, as you see, there's the empire come home. There's, there's people who come home to troops coming home from Vietnam to America or to France from Algeria who become the, the, the folks who are the founders of the American and French far right. So there is this idea of, uh, of a kind of a great betrayal that takes hold for some of these people and they become a different kind of counter-revolutionary political figure uh, when they get home uh, in, a, in a different way. So there is this persistence of ideas in these sort of these sort of troubling afterlives that the ideas have after they're after they're officially mostly set aside. So that brings us up to Iraq. So maybe we could set the scene the, the of greatest Iraq counterinsurgency <laughs> of operation. all time. So, Best. like, what is the state of counterinsurgent, era. the counterinsurgent imagination in two thousand one? What happens over the course of two thousand one to two thousand three, and then how does this come to shape Iraq? So. Circa, um, circa, circa 9-11, circa 2001, the status of counterinsurgency was that nobody used the word, as far as I can tell. It was just not, not in, certainly not in popular circulation. David Petraeus claims that when he was at, uh, at West Point in the, I think it would have been the early 80s, um, as, a, a, as a student, uh, there was no course on counterinsurgency. He had to go to the library and dig around for it because he developed a personal interest. Um, and then encountered it again when he was sent to, to France to study there for something and so on. And it, it would kind of creep up at the margins, but it wasn't part of formal military education at all at the time. What happened uh, with it uh, over the run of the period after 9-11 is uh, it doesn't come up at all in the initial conversation about um, uh, about um, the, the invasions of Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and then, and then afterward Iraq. Uh, opponents of the war would sometimes suggest, look, you're going to wind up with an insurgency or something, which is, of course, what happened. Um, and they would gesture at the difficulty of dealing with an insurgency, but there wasn't any particular planning for it in, in military circles, uh, other than um, the general production of guidelines for how to conduct occupations 
particularly heading into Iraq, either military or the State Department produced something as well, I think, um, all of which was, was quite assiduously not used by the people initially running the occupations uh, in both countries. Of course, they, they then go very badly, both wars do, particularly Iraq. And uh, the kind of the standard narrative is David Petraeus and some other people around him, some of his assorted acolytes, position themselves as the sort of internal resistance in the American military policy apparatus, and they get themselves they get themselves assigned to a position where they're able to, one, produce a manual, an instructional text for how to, to go out and, and fight irregular wars, and two, uh, then use that as the basis for the policy that um, for early 2007 was called the surge. So that's the sort of the, the official narrative, at least as, as Petraeus and his people have, have, have promulgated it. And it's exactly wrong, I don't think. They did get themselves, they did steer themselves into a position where they could be the kind of the the, 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 the internal opposition um, that could produce this, um, this set of ideas um, through, uh, it was a set of conferences, particularly for Leavenworth in Kansas, where they, they drafted this manual very, very quickly. And there were, by my count, I think it's 20 or 22 people involved. It's just quite a large group of people working very, very quickly. And, and so that's how counterinsurgency becomes very briefly cool again for a while, about 15 years ago. And it's Petraeus. It's a few other Americans. Uh, most of them uniformed, though not all of them. It's an Australian, David Kilcullen, who kind of um, navigated himself into these positions. Most of these guys, at least the more senior ones, are really, really assiduously careerist. They're all smart. They've all got PhDs. They're, they're not dumb people at all. And they were very, very efficient workers of the, uh, the bureaucratic system. The one thing that they absolutely knew was um, organizations and organizational learning. And you see this on the pages of the manual, which is, it's really a book about organization. It's not a book about, about warfare in some ways at all. Could you maybe describe the book a little? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's large. It's longer than most American military manuals. Uh, it's an incredibly political text in some respect in that it was designed to, it was written to produce a political outcome. It was written to underwrite a particular set of permissions to fight a particular kind of war. So it was written with its audience being in some sense the American civilian government. It is, uh, it's quite lengthy. I think it's seven or eight chapters and several appendices. Um, and it works through the, the organizational form of the war, the conduct of, of certain sorts of things in the field. But chiefly, it's about how to organize yourself when you're occupying a country and how to organize the occupation, how to, uh, to interface with, there's an entire chapter on interfacing with civilian agencies, which is a, a set of ideas that wouldn't have even occurred to previous counterinsurgents a few generations prior. A large text that is very much about producing a set of, uh, about how to produce a set of bureaucratic and organizational effects. It has this oddly kind of um, neoliberal or managerial valence to it a lot of the time. Uh, it uses words like uh, like synergy a lot, which is, um, if that's not management talk, I don't know what is. And it's uh, it's an oddly patchwork text in a lot of ways because it was written by a bunch of people very, very quickly. It's an assemblage of things that were written Separately, the process sounds very much like, I mean, anyone who's a, an academic will have been to a, a conference or a workshop where you get together and you're producing an edited volume and everyone brings their, their chapter and they're all a little bit different. They don't quite fit together and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And it sounds like it was very much like that. And so they went through a series of, of revisions through this kind of bureaucratized, kind of academic looking process and then, um, and then had to kind of feed the thing back up through the the dual bureaucracies of the Army and the Marine Corps, which which is really where Petraeus was most involved. He didn't write much of the manual at all, other than um, some parts of the first chapter were modeled on something he'd written. 
Well, thank God he did because they used counterinsurgency and Iraq as a functioning democracy and everything's good. Yeah, everything's so, good. Go. Yeah, every, so, everything, I mean, yeah, you know, everything, everything. Thank you, everything thank you by the way, to the Iraqi people. <laughs> yes. You're welcome, Robert. Uh, <laughs> thank right. you and you're welcome. Uh, so both. what is the story of counterinsurgency in Iraq? So we have this manual and then what is the actual on the ground reality of this? Is this shit just thrown out the window? People just do whatever the hell's going on. What's the story of counterinsurgency in Iraq? And then how does it relate to the earlier experience of counterinsurgency in Vietnam? Uh, what happens in Iraq, uh, very roughly, is they get there in early 2007, uh, Petraeus and his, his new deployment of troops. And they just they throw a lot of soldiers and a lot of money at the problem. They um, encounter or, or help to produce with all of that money a turn in, in part of the population, part of the armed population in, in Western Iraq. This is what's, what's referred to as the Anbar Awakening. And but it, wasn't that mostly not due to counterinsurgency, but due to local dynamics? Everything I read yeah. was that it has almost nothing to do with – okay, sorry. So sorry. And, 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 and money? At, at, most they paid, at most they paid for. I think it's just the most of what we can say there. Um, the, uh, the attempts to explain it after the fact suggest that, that the surge writ large did something. How much of that was specifically doctrinal counterinsurgency? I suspect probably not very much. A lot of it was just you throw a lot of new troops at a, at a war and it's going gonna, it's gonna to behave a bit differently. Uh, the effect was whatever caused it, a reduction in violence for a while. The crucial thing is that that reduction did not last. Um, eventually, you get a resumption of violence and eventually you get the Islamic State within, and it's about five years, so um, it, it does. It, it, it does not go. It definitely does not go well in the long term, or even the medium term. And in the short term, what effects we see, it's less than clear exactly that the counterinsurgency has anything much to do with them. And how does this affect how the military understood counterinsurgency? What what happens over the next, you know, fifteen years to where we are today? So. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is the professional fortunes of the people involved. Of course, Petraeus' career has this um, particular arc to it, shall we say, uh, which we can get into if you like. The, uh, the, the idea of counterinsurgency has this moment of extraordinary political fashionability circa 2007 or so because there was this perceived emergency of trying to salvage the war. And it appeared to be working maybe kind of for a while, at least if you were, if you were squinting at it, because there were these changes on, on the ground in the country. Um, the idea gets recycled circa 2011 or so for uh, a second run, so to speak, in, in Afghanistan. Um, Stanley McChrystal gets himself removed from the war for reasons of his own. And the result is that Petraeus is parachuted in there to run that war too. Uh, it doesn't go very well at all in that case. They don't really even see temporary effects. The, uh, the idea of counterinsurgency is by this time beginning to pass into unfashionability because neither war is going very well at that point. And, um, the people involved had kind of largely dispersed at this point. They left the military. They'd gone on to other things. Uh, David Kilcullen was running a, a, an expensive consultancy of some sort by this time. Uh, Petraeus was briefly director of the CIA, from which he got fired for reasons to do with his personal life. And uh, and so the idea kind of goes to ground again. We stop hearing about counterinsurgency. It goes from being unfashionable in, say, 2012 or so, maybe about 10 years ago, to um, to being just a word we don't hear very much for a while as a result. What do you think explains this disconnect between uh, the architects of, of a strategy that manifestly failed both in both places it was tried and the fact that they just keep getting promoted upward? I mean, Petraeus winds up, as you say, a CIA director. He's not fired from that for any professional reason. Uh, you've got other guys who go on to the, the private sector and make, you know, probably very good money 
uh, sharing the lessons of the thing that they did completely wrong and screwed up. Uh, I'm just sort of curious about this because it's a, it seems to be a, uh, a recurring theme and, and spe- especially in the modern U.S. military where you have these generals who have very impressive credentials. They get PhDs, they write books, and yet the, the results do not really reflect, uh, a, you know, what you would might expect. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure they're always well liked in, in, in the professional military. Uh, I mean, they, these guys, they, when you present yourself as a maverick in the military setting, that has certain kind of institutional cultural resonances. Um, in terms of why they've succeeded, it probably depends where you're looking. I mean, uh, something like most or all of the generals who ran Afghanistan have wound up in either consulting or finance and have gotten extraordinarily wealthy by doing so, like incredibly wealthy. Part of that is probably just that they're, they're, they're bankable brands, or at least potentially so. Part of it is that people from, from elite military backgrounds may, may strike Wall Street people as cool. Um, it kind of depends on the, the cultural setting you're looking at them succeeding in. But um, why do they succeed when they do succeed inside the military? I mean, they're, um, these guys were, again, professional workers of the system. They knew how to, they, they were careerists. They understood how the system worked. They understood how to manipulate it. And they were good at it. They were not dumb. And it was, as a result, they were able to advance their own interests in a recurring way. They, they found themselves in a situation where they could, um, they could advance their own interests. And so they did so, I think, is the honest reading. So just to close out here, what do you think the state of the counterinsurgent imagination is in 2023? And what are the general takeaways that you think listeners should take away from this conversation? Sure. Right now, we're not talking about counterinsurgency a whole lot in applied context, I don't think. Uh, in Ukraine, the shoe's on the other foot. And the U.S. is putatively not running a war of occupation anywhere right now. Of course, there are American troops all over the place, but but not not actively fighting a large war of occupation anywhere. And that is the, the official line that America is not at war. Um, so right now we're in one of these post counterinsurgency period where the term goes to ground. It would probably be good if it stayed be good if it stayed there for a while. Be my own thinking. But if history is is any indication at all, we're likely to see it again at some point, and that will depend on the particular. The particular context, um, the American military or other militaries, and their um, uh, and and their civilian their their civilian um, superiors um, find themselves. You got to get back on the bike, man. I mean, you got to get back on the bike. Uh, there is a tendency to do that eventually. The good news is it takes a few decades, uh, and maybe it won't happen again. We're only really talking about two cycles of this in the American case, right? So in, 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 and unless you're looking at the longer the longer American history in places like the Philippines, then it's longer. But it might not recur, but but my inclination is to expect that it probably will. I mean, my own, I, there's no kind of first order policy prescription under writing the book, or at least I don't think there is formally. It's not, it's not on the page. I mean, I, I usually say that you can, you can boil down the good advice for this stuff to, to pretty much four words. Don't fight these wars. There is just no good reason for a, a liberal democracy to be fighting expeditionary wars in places where they're, um, they're explicitly and manifestly not wanted. Um, knowing that they're likely to lose based on historical experience. It's just not a good thing to spend your time doing. On that note, we at American Prestige agree. Joseph McKay, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, check out the counterinsurgent imagination. And Joseph, we look forward to having you back. Thanks very much. It's been great.